The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. back everybody to another edition of Bubba and the Bat Flip episode 30 30 episodes in between Toby and myself you can find me on Twitter at BDMtrick and Toby on Twitter at Bat Flip Crazy how you doing man uh we're doing pretty pretty well Bubba all things considering you know I'm I'm still having a little bit of a tough time getting back into fantasy baseball but today was actually really helpful I was just doing some research randomly inspired by um you know, some of the that that uh, game that Eno and DVR put out where they're like telling people to look back over since 1980 and choose, you know, see like the best seasons from different teams and players. And so I was doing just like a little digging. I'm not I haven't I haven't fully gotten into it and I'm not going to like actually uh, put put a team into the competition. But just going back and looking at some of the historical seasons that have taken place from some of my favorite players and. Uh, that's kind of and sharing some of those has gotten me back into the swing of things and just feeling really fortunate, you know, like I have a pretty secure job uh, doing what I do. And I know a lot of people are in really difficult situations. So just pretty feeling pretty fortunate and trying to get back into the swing of things with baseball. How about you? Yeah, no, it's uh, just kind of grinding along doing the day job thing and uh, sports after that, just keeping it uh, positive. And that's the best I can do is uh keep digging into the sports. I, I'm having fun uh, learning new things and tr- uh, digging deeper on players that I haven't even noticed things. Like I was doing a thing on deep, deep first baseman today. And I looked at Rowdy Telez and when he got called up in uh, uh, late July or late August in his month of September alone was absolutely amazing. So maybe it's oh, something yeah. to build off of. But yeah. Just like little things just starting to, you know, look deeper into different graphs and see what stands out. And you look at Rowdy Telez, just you throw it out there. If you look at his graphs, they all spike September to the end of the season. He absolutely 
starts destroying baseballs and looks really, really good. So, uh, well, well Bob, Bubba, you'll notice when we do eventually get to our hopeful targets for the infield, he is at the top of my list. So outstanding, outstanding. So at least, at least I'm on the right page there. Because if Toby's on him, that means he saw something before I did, which is always good. Always <laughs> a plus in that respect. But uh, yeah, I just uh, yesterday I spent about a couple hours here and there. I was in and off of my computer, uh, live tweeting at auction, which I never thought I would do, but I actually thoroughly enjoyed it because it was really cool to see how people are starting to evaluate players with a different mindset going forward. And there was um, some pretty sharp players, some good money on the line, so they weren't just throwing things out there. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But uh, overall, just grinding along. And uh, you mentioned Eno and DVR's deal on rates and barrels, which sounds pretty cool. You um, have an idea for the coming weeks. I don't know if you want to just mention it because maybe the listeners can play along with us. Yeah, well, it's it's really fun. I mean, the the competition I would highly recommend. I think listen to the rates and barrels from this last Tuesday. That's one of the athletic podcasts. Always great uh, with DVR and Eno, but they just had a, a really fun game. You know, as we have a little bit of lull in fantasy baseball action and baseball in general. You know, both that and then I I asked this week on Twitter like what would be the most helpful content that uh, I could provide and that we could provide moving forward while we have this little bit of a dip, if not this extended dip in actual baseball activity. And a lot of people mentioned kind of looking back at previous seasons, historical seasons and like a fantasy baseball or baseball context, ones that like inspired us as as fans of baseball. And, and so the combination of those two things, I thought it might be fun on this uh, podcast, maybe starting next week, if we could uh, take a look at uh, season since 1980 and me and you could have like a little bit of a draft towards the end uh, of the podcast, similar in addition to like what Clay Link and James Anderson do, but we could do our own spinoff of it where we use the same rules that DVR and Eno have, uh, but we try to fill up a team of 14 hitters, one pitcher each week we draft one of each and we can't uh, duplicate. So if I pick a guy, then you can't pick that particular season and just see how our teams end up. I thought that might be a fun way to do a little bit of kind of romanticizing of, of the past and, and looking back at some fun, fun seasons that have been happening and just seeing also in the same context, like how fantasy baseball has changed over the years in terms of scarcity of different categories or scarcity of different positions. So that's kind of the idea. I thought that might be a fun thing to do moving forward. Yeah, definitely will be. That'll be something we can do. Uh, for those interested, a listener contacted me on Twitter yesterday and some other people as well about Stratomatic. I know Jeff Erickson has talked about it. So I'm going to record an episode with Erickson later this week. And I've been digging into Stratomatic, and it might be something fun to uh, to do to pass the time also because it's basically they play games every day based on stats and different deals from years past. You can do all different eras, all kinds of cool stuff. So Another thing to kind of check out and play with. It could be a fun little deal. And they have an app now on your phone, so you don't have to do it in live with a dice and a board, which is oh, kind man. of fun also. I've so, got a, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to to listen to that episode of yours because my my dad used to play back in the day, yeah. like late 80s, early 90s. I remember him and some buddies would play uh, Stratomatic baseball. So I'm excited to learn more about that. Yeah, you know, once a, I guess there's a like a PC version you can put on there, so you don't have to do it in person. But now there's a mobile app which I downloaded today. I'm trying to figure things out. And I'm emailing back and forth, so I hope to have a better answer for people by the end of the week, maybe next episode, and maybe we can have a little group uh, play a little league or something because it's really cool. You can do Negro League players, you can do um, 
any decades, anything. You can mix them together, or you can just play last year players. Like, there's all different ways to do it. So, pretty. That's cool awesome. Deal, but yeah, we will check that out, and uh, we'll 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 have some fun here talking about old players one way or another. We'll start with our little draft next week. Uh, this will be another mailbag edition. We've got a good like nine, ten questions to go over. So we will. Um, Talk. Chris Norica uh, does some great uh, graphic designing for the podcast and has a great question to start things out. He'd love to hear our thoughts on two athletics corners, Matt Chapman versus Matt Olson. First, Toby, who do you like better of the two? Well, um, I like Matt Chapman more, not as like in like a straight up way, but just because of the value um, for Matt Chapman. I like I like that a lot more. I don't particularly love either player. Um, at where they're going right now. But I think, you know, I think we've talked before on the podcast um, that Matt Olson was one of the guys that I kind of liked least where he was going, just because it's a similar profile to Pete Alonzo, you know, in the sense that like the average really isn't there. um, The stolen bases aren't really there. And so I saw that as a fairly, like, I, I think he's still a really good player. But like, for instance, for my valuations, I have him as like a, about a $16, $17 player, uh, which is about the 80th best player in baseball. And he's going, he, his ADP right now was 56, or at least in the latest one that I had looked at. And so that's a pretty terrible value where he's going um, right there. Whereas with Chapman, um, I had uh, Chapman, he's about, he kind of earns what he is. I have him as the 82nd most valuable um, player and his ADP is 89. So it's actually, you're getting a little bit of value from Matt Chapman. Whereas with, um, with Olsen, you weren't getting any value at all, but really they're pretty similar in terms of their play uh, as players and profiles, not really going to help you out a ton with batting average, you know, Olsen obviously with more power, I think, but, uh, Chapman going to score, uh, probably more runs, you know, hitting where he does in the lineup probably would have been, Um, you know, number three, I think in that lineup. So either way, I think they're both solid players, but Chapman is definitely a better value. How about you? Yeah. Chapman is the better value for sure. Going uh, much, much later. Uh, I pulled up the online draft since March 15th. So basically after spring training was canceled and and Chapman's going at pick 97 over that stretch and Olsen at pick 50. I love Olsen. I'm a big, big, I'm a big, big fan of Olsen, but it's one of those I'm like not rushing to draft him at pick 50. I don't have him. To, where I have him was when he was going much later, early in draft season. Uh, he's been he's been climbing up all draft season. I guess it up to 50 now. So both great players. Olsen legit has 45 plus home run power, but he's going to get you in the average. Like you said, he'd be happy with a 250 ish, 260 if you were really lucky with the Matt Olsen, but don't count on that. Where Chapman's a little more balanced, he might be like more of a 260 to 270 hitter, kind of help you out in all categories. He's also one of those guys that hits the ball super, super hard and doesn't launch the ball high enough. His launch angle is very, very low. If he makes any slight tweak, any slight tweak, Chapman's got massive power, like massive, massive power. And it's one of those where he can he can blast off. Like a comparison, it's fun because in real life, people compare him to Josh Donaldson when Donaldson was on the A's. He's like their new version of Donaldson. And uh, he's currently going about four picks before Chapman at pick 93. I actually saw in that Saxton auction yesterday, uh, Chapman actually went for 19, and right after him, Donaldson went for 18. Now, I personally would take Donaldson 
over Chapman, um, but it's a good comparison that the the, the top end of a of a Matt Chapman has that Josh Donaldson upside. So there there is a lot to like there in, in that respect. Um, when we look a little farther, Norika's questions. He says, "Could you compare the two? We did that. So, uh, any final thoughts on Donaldson and Olson? I mean, not Olson and Chapman. Not really. Um, I you, I don't know if you could hear my three year old uh, yelling in the background there, but just in case you could, he's okay. Um, just having a little bit of a hard time getting to bed today. But that's all. That's all I have to add to the Chapman Olson. No problem at all. All right, we're gonna have a lot of closer talk here because Daniel Prep is a good listener of the show." He started off and it started a kind of cascade of things throughout the uh, the Twitter feed. So we'll start off here. In general, Toby, what's your thoughts on short season effect on – if we're having a shortened season, it's effect on closers. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. I think there's a lot of ways to go. Um, from my perspective, it actually devalues closers significantly. And the reason why I say that – is that we know already that relief pitchers have the highest variance profiles because they pitch the fewest innings. And so a good, you know, a really good stretch here or a really bad stretch there. And especially over a shortened season, it becomes nearly impossible to be able to, um, you know, counteract that. Right. So like, if you think about, you know, let's say a guy gives up in a span of two weeks, he has two blow up performances where he gives up, you know, a combined like six or seven earned runs over a shortened season. You know, let's say the guy like traditionally a closer throws 65 innings. So in a shortened season, maybe they're throwing more because, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, there's a shorter season. And so there's less of a stress on kind of um, you know, the wording, worry about how many innings they're going to throw, but let's say that they throw 40, you know, like that's only, you know, that's four, four and a half, you know, nine inning games. And so like, if you give up eight earned runs over that course period of time, that's like nearly a two ERA just in those two outings alone. If you're perfect in every other inning, it's still like slightly better than a two ERA. So I don't know if I explained that very well, but only a couple blowups here and there can result in um, really poor uh, performance overall for a full season, right? And so I don't Mm want to be investing in that level. I don't want to be investing heavily in that level of variance. Um, And so what I would probably do, and again, like there, you know, there's, there's a, you know, I think there's, you could go either way, right? You could also say, oh, well, guys who have really secure hold on the job, well, you want to invest in them because they're going to stick it out longer. And it's like, well, like in a shortened season, like, do you really want them to stick it out longer if they're pitching really poorly, right? Like that's, if they, if they go through a bad week, then you're, you could be in some respects kind of screwed. Um, And so what I would probably do, and there was a good exchange on Twitter on this, and I agree with this is, I would probably go for more of a volume approach um, where I would go after some of the worst closers, right? Like some of the second tier, third tier closers, but just go for more of a bulk approach. So I think it's pretty similar to the approach that I would normally have in a draft going after closers, but I might just be a little bit more focused on uh, volume and maybe giving up a few later picks to go after committees or things like that. 
knowing that I can't wait too long to go after saves, that I have to have saves pretty clearly from the get-go if I'm going to compete in that, uh, but also recognizing that I don't want to invest a lot of draft capital in such a such high variance um, uh, in such a high variance position. So I think I would devalue them overall and just go for more of a of a bulk approach, if you will, um, with some of those committees and see those as a little bit better value propositions um, than not. How would how would you approach that? There's two, there's two ways I'd, I'd approach it. It's either I'd go all in and try to get like two studs, like really guys I'm, I'm pretty confident can lock it down. Like there is a concern, like you said, a couple of bad outings and it ruins it for you. We talked about that when we did uh, the Relief Pitcher podcast where Edwin Diaz, I think it was like four of his like 30-something outings. He gave up four runs or more or something like that. I can't remember the top of my head, but something in that, in that vein. Otherwise, he is pretty much lights out. It's just everything's so blown up because of like four bad outings in an entire season. So a shorter season, it makes it even worse. One or two bad outings, like you said, it, it could ruin everything. At the same time, when you look at it in that respect, you'd imagine just ERA in general could be up for everybody. Because the same goes for you know a starters only going to throw maybe 100 innings instead of 180. So it's a trickle-down effect all over the board where you, you might get uh, just higher ERAs and, and certain ratios might not be the same in this format. But I'd either want two elite guys where I think – the quantity of saves and the overall quality of that pitcher, the consistency of that pitcher is going to be outstanding. Otherwise, just go full heavy. Start with like the kind of third tier guys like a Joe Jimenez, uh, Alex Colomay type, and then just go down from there. You know, the Ian Kennedys, the Hunter Harveys. Look at the, you know, Daniel Hudson, Doolittle side of things. Look at the Alvarados. We talked about that. The Rays, there's going to be more guys than just Nick Anderson getting saves, even though some recent news said Nick Anderson should get the bulk of the saves. I'll believe that when I see it with Kevin Cash. But uh, you could definitely do something in those respects, get some some deeper targets there to but to, to make it happen. There's a lot of cheapies that you can look at, especially if you look at that auction on Sunday. Like Yoshi, Yoshi Hirano is going for like a buck. Um, mm-hmm. a, a lot of dudes are going cheap. Doolittle for four, Tony Watson for one, Daniel Hudson for one. Um, a lot of cheap, cheap options out there if you want to get, get weird. Scott Oberg, I believe, went for like one or two. So you can get some real cheap options, like you said, and just, just get the bulk saves that way and see what happens. So those, those are the two ways I go about it. Either get two elite guys or get like four kind of bottom feeders and just piece it together from there. All right, let's move on to Bill at D. Johnson Swag. Who are your favorites first and second round hitting targets in an NFBC format? So for the first round, who would be your favorite target, Toby? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, this is an interesting question because a lot of times it's just kind of like, you know, it depends on where you are in ADP. Um, So what I will say is for a hitter, I think that clearly to me, the most valuable target in the first round, um, and he's not even going in the first round, but the guy who I would take in the first round is Jose Ramirez. Um, for me, um, I think he's one of the few guys going really high up in drafts where he actually represents a value going where he's going. He's currently uh, at an ADP of 16, and I have him as the 10th most valuable player. I had the 11th pick in uh, the main event that I was drawn into. Um, and I had, so I had pick 11 and pick 20 coming back around. And assuming that the top three starting pitchers went, that Cole went, that Verlander went, or not Verlander, uh, DeGrom and Bueller went, 
assuming they weren't available at 11, which I didn't think was going to happen, I was probably going to take Jose Ramirez at that spot just because I thought it was a little early uh, for, um, you know, like Jack Flaherty or any of the other pitchers. Um, so I actually was, was maybe depending on how things, uh, went, I was, I was maybe going to draft two hitters to start off with. I was going to start oh off with Jose goodness. Ramirez. I know. Well, you know, it's just the, the landscape in starting pitchers has just changed so dramatically. Big time. I mean, with Verlander, you know, even now it's like, I don't feel really comfortable drafting him. You know, I feel good about Cole. I feel good about DeGrom. I feel good about Bueller. I worry a little bit about the strikeouts, but I think the ratios are going to be really good there for Bueller. And I mean, after that, it's like Jack Flaherty, who I'm not huge on. Like, I can see why people are really into him and I can see him being the Nets starting pitcher off the board, but I just don't love the value there. Um, and so, what I was probably going to do is go with Jose Ramirez at 11. And then coming back around, depending on who was there, if Flaherty was available at 20, which he probably wasn't going to be, then I was going to go with Flaherty. But if Flaherty wasn't there, it was either going to be Shane Bieber, who I don't love at 20. Like, I just don't love the value there. So I was probably going to go with Starling Marte if he was still available, which, you know, probably would have been the case, but it being the main event and speed being at such a premium and guys kind of getting their guys at that point. I'm not sure for sure that he was going to be available um, there at 20, but he probably would have been. That would have been, the, um, I think, the min pick, tied for the min pick. So I probably was going to go Jose Ramirez and Starling Marte. And I think those two, I would say, for me, are the hitters that represent the most value going where they're going currently. Um, I think Marte... Um, I have him as the 20th most valuable player at about $25, $26, and his ADP is 25th. So I really like the value there. Uh, my projections really like Rafael Devers, actually, um, as a huge value in the in the first, second round. They, they have him as the 14th most valuable player uh, compared to 22nd in ADP. Um, I don't mind Devers at all, but just the profile is not necessarily one just because of the limited speed that I would go after in the first or second round. But so if I had to say, I would say Jose Ramirez and Starling Marte are the guys that I like the most going um, in the first and second round, um, just because of how much it helps you build your team. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of, that's what I would say. So that's your first and second. So I, okay, cool. I was asking for your first round, but we got them both. So oh good. man. Well, um, what is what is a better reflection of how long-winded I am than to do that? <laughs> that's like pretty typical of me. Yeah, it's all good. So, but Starling Marte, you wouldn't take him second overall like someone else did, right? I would not. I saw that draft board. I would not take. That's what I'm going to start doing is like entering the the different uh, drafts and just screwing with everybody by drafting these god awful teams um, with the because I'm I'm. I know I don't know if I've mentioned this on the pod, but I'm fairly convinced that we won't have a season at all, which is super depressing to think about. So it's the last time I'll say it. But um, yeah, anyways. Yeah, no, for me, uh, I'm a huge J Ram fan, so I can second that notion as as a first round option. That's uh, something I, I can definitely get behind there. So uh, Jose Ramirez at pick uh, 15 or so towards the turn sounds very very good. I, I can see that uh, very very strongly. 
Um, if not, I'd probably get one of the shortstops. Give me uh, Lindor or uh, Turner Story, one of those three. But J-Ram would be a, a strong, strong choice there. And then uh, going to the second round, I do like Starling Marte. I've taken him in TGFBI and other places I know you have as well. He's one of the, the last, like, five category options you can get in, in the top two rounds. So I think we're pretty much on the same page with those two options. If I had to throw a second one out for the second round uh, targets, I would I would probably go with, um, let's say, an Aussie Albies if you want to get second base depth. Mm-hmm. He could potentially get you uh, five categories as well. So someone else to think about in that regard. All right. Uh, the next one on hand here is from your boy Brian Slack. You had some fun with him on this. If you're planning <laughs> to draft the team based on 80th and 90th percentile category targets, which you love to do, which is a very strategy, and we have a shortened season, say 81 games, would you simply just cut the targets in half? What's your answer to that, Toby? Yeah, it's a really good question by Brian. And and to your point, um, I responded with a never gif, my one of my favorite gifs, the Harry Potter never gif. And by the way, the all-star so far of um of the stay-at-home orders has definitely in my family been Harry Potter because my six-year-old is super into Harry Potter. We we read the did first book. Fi- did you guys finally get to the movies? We got to the first movie, so we read the first book. We watched the first movie. We're now in the middle of the second book, and literally, like, the whole day is Harry Potter. Like, today, they were – he and the three-year-old were on their best behavior. They were, like – they played chess, which they've gotten into a lot since the first movie because there's a chess angle in it. So they were playing chess, which is essentially involves the six-year-old like not telling the three-year-old how to play and just telling him to move his pieces into the position where he gets to take them. Um, But he, uh, and then after that, they like turned uh, these little like brooms that they have, like toy broom sets into brooms that they flew around the house on. And it's just been like pretty much Harry Potter all the time, but like in a very positive and attention keeping uh, manner. So shout out to Harry Potter there. Um, actually, like I think, uh, I, so I responded with a Harry Potter never gif and Steve Weimer at Steve Y-M-E-R, who is a terrific player in his own rate, uh, in his own right and a super thoughtful guy in general, just a, an awesome dude. Um, he actually had a super response, uh, um, uh, super nice response where he actually had looked at what percentage of the total full season stats had already been accumulated through like a hundred games of the season. So through 61.7% of the season, what percentage of the year end totals had already been achieved and actually found that like 64% of runs uh, 62% of home runs, 63% of RBIs, 61% of stolen bases, and so on and so forth, like what percentage had been. And actually, there's a higher percentage earlier on in the season. Um, are, um, you know, And so I would actually assume that based on the numbers he ran and just thinking about like variance in general, like over a longer period of time, variance will get smaller and the overall total will regress closer to the mean, so closer to the average. And so I think what you're likely to see in some of these shortened seasons, if they happen, is that guys who have just a a higher percentage of their players have positive variance 
positively high variance early on in the season will be the guys who win leagues, you know, because they won't have as much time to regress back to the mean. And so I anticipate that you will actually need a higher percent than you would otherwise. Like it wouldn't just be 50%. I think it'll probably be, I don't know, like 52, 53% of the total, something like that is what you would probably need to be at that 80th or 90th percentile. And so I do think that, um, you know, you, you probably can't just cut it in half. I think you'd have to assume and run like a modeling similar to what Steve did or else just steal what Steve put up there, which is probably what I would do because he's smarter than I am. And then take that and just like uh, apply that to however many games are left in the season. So Brian, to answer your question in a shorter way than I just went through is I would not just cut them in half. I would try to figure out, you know, probably two or three percentage points above whatever the middle is and assume that, you know, the guys who win their leagues are going to be the guys who happen to have higher variance towards the middle part of the season. And one thing to think about, too, with the, a potential shortened season and the new roster rules, a lot of guys that might get extra days off late in the year or being up in the postseason, getting days off, that's not going to happen this year because there's not many bench mm-hmm. spots. There's going to be a shorter season. Some more teams will be involved. So some of those guys that, I'm not, you know, the best of the best still play like 150-something games. So it's not like it's a crazy number, but I think you'll get a lot of those September games they'll be playing more of than they wouldn't where – Maybe that skews the first half, second half numbers. I don't know. Just throwing potential options out there. But I think these guys, if say we play 81 games, I think the best of the best are playing easily 75, if not 80 plus. Like they're going to be playing most of these games because the, the less variance to get into the postseason, all that kind of stuff, they're going to need the best players out there at all times. So as long as they're on a platoon, they're going to be playing a lot. And you got to think about um, that kind of production from each player is kind of where my head would be on that. But uh, you guys are much more knowledgeable in the percentage aspects of things. That's for sure. Yeah. And one one interesting thing on Steve's finding is that the biggest, the biggest difference or the biggest um, gap in the percentage was actually in saves. So saves had the highest percentage early on in the season. So maybe that goes against what I said earlier, but what it just tells you is that, it's probably easier. It's either easier to get saves early on in the season or the guys who get saves early on in the season because they've already got those saves banks, which is actually probably the more likely explanation is because they already have those saves banked the second half of the season, maybe, you know, in that nine, in those nine roster spots, instead of having uh, six starting pitchers and three closers, they moved to seven starting pitchers and two closers. So that could be one explanation. And also another interesting thing is it was actually under 100% of ERA and WHIP. So like 94% of ERA and 99% of which WHIP, which tells you that the ERA and the WHIP of those teams actually improved in the second half, which is kind of interesting. And I just wonder if, I wonder what the explanation of that is, whether it's just that at that point in the season, you have a better sense of what production to expect from the pitchers because you have a higher sample you've noticed whatever changes they're there maybe you have a better understanding of which matchups are going to be successful or not maybe there's less competition on the waiver wire I don't know there's I think there's a lot of really fascinating things to think about and implications for what that little tweet that Steve shared have for like how you build your team or how how your roster management and your decisions evolve over the course of a full season 
a couple things on that you could say for the saves as well as the season goes on. Um, maybe those guys are changing roles and they couldn't replace them on the roster. Uh, they got traded committees. We've seen all kinds of goofy stuff of late with so many guys like Alex Fast talked about getting saves. Uh, they might not be able to, maybe not as locked in as they once were to the players they have. And then when you're talking ERA and WHIP, I know it's been proven time and time again that hitters start out the year good, pitchers finish good. So it's more of a um, as pitchers kind of get in their groove and get developed, which kind of portrays into what you're saying is maybe we we know have a better feel on who to play during these weeks, who to stream, and everything. It would make more sense for ERA and WHIP to get better as the season goes long, goes on. Uh, so that's something else to uh, keep in mind in that scenario. All right, Dave Petroziello, frequent listener to the show. Uh, these are some guys we talked about on our second starting pitching preview, but he just had a draft over the weekend and wanted some opinions. Best chance at a breakout or at least a good outcome of Turnbull, Sheffield, and Voth. I know a couple of those guys are on your radar for sure. He drafted all three late in his draft last night, uh, Sunday night and didn't get some of the pitchers he wanted earlier. So he's relying on these guys pretty good. Um, which of the three has got the best chance for a breakout? Yeah, I mean, the best chance question, I mean, part of me thinks uh, the answer to that one is Turnbull, uh, depending on what you mean as a breakout. Like, I think if I were to choose one of these three pitchers and say, Toby, like, you need to, um, you know, you have, you're betting like $50 on which guy, well, I don't know if this is a good example. Like, essentially, what I think is that Turnbull is the most likely uh, to break out because he has a starting gig. He's on the Tigers. He's pitching in the AL Central. He's got a really nice repertoire and I think a pretty clear way to improve it by ditching his sinker. And he also, his velo was at or above where it had been in previous years during spring training. So that bode, boded or bode well um, for how he was going to do. And so I think because of that, I would say, that he probably has the best chance to have a quote unquote breakout. Uh, Voth is the guy of those three though, that I like more because I do, but he's got this like, you know, 50, 50, if not worse chance of even making the rotation out of spring training. So for Voth, I think if he does join the rotation out of spring training or whatever happens when the season starts, like I think he has a really strong chance of being a very good pitcher this year, because I think if he's in the rotation, we've already seen him be successful. I think he can be equally as successful as he's been in the past. Um, he's got the stuff. He's got the repertoire. He's got the three pitches with above a 15% swinging strike rate. He's got a good enough fastball. Um, he is on a really good team with the nationals in a pretty good division, all things considered. And so I think if he ends up in the rotation, I think there's a good chance that he's going to be a very strong contributor to your team. I think the problem with that is going into that equation, you're recognizing that in 60% of the outcomes, he doesn't even start the season in the rotation and maybe you're dropping him earlier on in the season. So that's kind of what I would say. And then Sheffield, I like a lot. I mean, I think he's going to be in the rotation as well. I think his situation is a little bit worse on the Mariners. I'm just not a huge fan. He's got to go up against the Astros a bunch. He's got to go up against the A's a bunch. Um, and so I don't love uh, those two things. He's definitely got the repertoire. Like, you know, the fastball isn't great, but he's got the nasty slider and he's got the changeup that he's developed. He looked good during spring training. The velocity was about where it had been. 
And so I like him as well. And he might be the best value just because he's going so late in drafts. Like, you know, I don't know where he's going most recently. I should probably check just by searching right here. So he's going at pick 335, actually. So he's actually moved up quite a bit uh, recently. Um, let's see, where is, where is Voth going now recently? He's going at 356. So Voth is actually going after um, after Sheffield now. So I would say Voth would probably be the best value. Well, where, where's Turnbull going? I should look at all these. About things. 360. Turnbull is like going right around Voth. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah. So I think Turnbull is the most likely. He has the best chance to be successful overall. I think Voth has the highest ceiling of the group. And then I think Sheffield is kind of a little bit of a wild card. So he's probably third for me. But I think all three of those options are very, very solid. So I love those three as kind of speculative late round picks that you can make. Yeah, no, they're, they're all three really solid later round options. I, I, I don't know if I want all three at the same time in my rotation, but they could hit. You never know. I think Turnbull is the one I would go with as well. Um, we saw signs of it last year. We, we, his pitch mix changed over the offseason. I was working on it in spring. It was really good early on, so there was something to build off of there. So I, I'd be going Turnbull and then Voth. It's just a matter of can he get the spot in the rotation, which I'd hope he could, but for some reason – uh, Ross and company were, were battling them pretty good this spring. So I'll have to wait and see how that pans out. But Turnbull for me, then Voth. And Sheffield looked better this spring. Yes, velocity was much, much higher, but I, he's got to get that control under control. And that was a, a scary thing last year in the minors and in, in the bigs. So if he could stop walking, guys, he could be very, very good. But for me, I'm with you. Turnbull, Voth, Sheffield is how I'd go in that order. Uh, Matt Kaznarski at M. Kaznarski. One to two players that you have zero shares of that you wish you did own somewhere, possibly early trade targets. So who are a couple of guys that you have no shares of that you wish you did? And I'm guessing for you it's going to be hitters early oh, because man. of your pitching strategy. Yeah, uh, thank you for helping uh, to guide my thinking here. Um, so, guys, I mean, like, I'm always sad that I never get first-round hitters. Like, I literally – never get any of the top 10 hitters just because I'm focused on pitching there. So I would say, um, I would say those guys, I think you're definitely right in that particular instance. Um, I have a couple shares of him. I'm just trying to think here, like who are guys that I really like, but I have no shares of right now. Um, do you have some in mind, Bubba, while I, while I think about this a little bit more? I think one that I was kind of bullish on to start the year, and the more I've researched them and the more time I can think on it, so this could be a problem having a late season, the more I dig in on things, but maybe it's a good thing. But Keston Hira, I'm actually starting to buy in on what he actually can do. I was kind of thinking fluky because, you know, the BABIPs, the hard hits, everything you look at is so out of this world. And, yes, there should still be some regression, but what regression is for him – and what he can still do, I think, is very, very good. And his draft price is pretty warranted. And I think that he's one guy that I might regret not having any shares of. Because in a second base position that we mentioned, it's very top-heavy. And there's a really big gap. And there's some like late-round targets that are good. Uh, I think Keston's a guy that I've kind of slept on. I wouldn't say slept on, but I passed by for other players. And I, I really think um, he's a guy I'm going to miss not having on any rosters right now. So he'd be one for me. 
All right. Uh, one guy I think that I, I don't think I have any shares of maybe, maybe I have one share of, I'm not sure, is Brian Reynolds of the Pirates. Um, I think the playing time is going to be there. Like the draft price is really nice, like around one, one, around pick one. Uh, I think it's around 190. Um, at least it was uh, around that time. Um, yeah, you're I have 187. You're good. 187. Yeah. So I have him as like the 154th most valuable player. I'm not sure why I don't have him. A lot of it is because I think in drafts that I've been in, he's gone higher. And so I'm oftentimes targeting closers around like pick 140 through 170. And with my strategy, I can't really wait too much on them. So I haven't been able to get uh, guys like that. Uh, And so, you know, Reynolds, for that reason, I'd miss on. I think I really like Reynolds because he's got a lot of batting average. Um, He hits for enough power. He's going to get a bunch of plate appearances. He's going to be at the top of that lineup. And I actually think the speed is a little underrated on him. I think he only had five stolen bases last year. He's projected for five stolen bases this year. But his sprint speed was actually pretty high. And his speed to first was also really high, like the company that he keeps um, around there, which if I talk slow enough, um, I can get to, um, is, let's see, Reynolds. So, yeah, so Reynolds is 95th in his time to first base. And so just to give you a sense of who he's nearby, Jose Ramirez, Tommy Pham, Yuan Moncada, Ramon Laureano, Nico Goodrum, Jonathan Villar, Dansby Swanson, Willie Adamas, Andrew Benintendi, Mookie Betts, Bo Bichette, Lorenzo Cain, Avisail Garcia. Those are all the guys around him. So every other player on that team, or everybody, every other player who's around that same sprint speed, the first base, which Jeff... Zimmerman's research has shown is more predictive than actual sprint speed. All those guys are double digit stolen base guys, except for Reynolds. And I think with the the pirates being pretty clear that they were going to try to steal some more bases to generate some more runs this season, I felt like he was a really good buy where he was going, but I don't know if I have any shares. I may have one or two, uh, but I think, I think that's it. Um, and then I would say my second guy, uh, would be, I don't have any shares of, uh, Zach Gallon right now. And I think he's super interesting. I mean, the projections don't necessarily love him, but I think he's got everything you need. The fastball is good enough. He's got three above average breaking slash, uh, off speed pitches. And I'm just not drafting pitchers where he's going that, that early on. So, that would be a guy and maybe him and then um, Frankie Montas. But um, yeah. How about you? Who would be a, like a second guy? Is there a, a pitcher that you don't have any shares of that you'd be really into having? Well, I like the Zach Gallon call because I have a lot of him. So I'm very, very uh, – <laughs> I'm a big, big Zach Gallon fan. Uh, for me, it's kind of the opposite of you because I'm not taking a – like I have one goal, Cole. I have one to Grom. So I have some of those. But a guy I don't have any of that I'm going to be kind of – mad I don't have any of and I'm hoping I do once I'm still staying optimistic I understand everyone's viewpoints but I'm praying for some sort of season um I don't have any Walker Bueller and I really think this kid could be that sneaky Cy Young type guy and having no Walker Bueller 
is really, really terrifying to me because I take a lot of pitchers like around the gallons and freeds of area of the draft. So like, I'll take like one kind of early and then I'll go. I have no Walker Bueller at all. And I think he's one of those guys with the pitch mix developments. He continues to do year in, year out. The velocity, just the location and control he has. He's going to be the ace of that staff, technically behind Kershaw, but we all know how that goes. Um, Bueller is a guy that I absolutely love and I have zero of. So he's, he's a guy I'm going to I'm gonna really miss having uh, no shares of. Uh, another hitter I was debating, I won't go into, but uh, just for fun and the potential of going crazy, what I have none of is Vlad Guerrero Jr., He's one of those guys that I could see taking that next step with the launch angle developments. While you were talking, I had a stat cast page up, kind of looking at different graphs. And basically from August to the end of the season, it seemed he was pressing a lot. So it's either pressing a lot and or he was wearing down for a first long season. So I'm curious to see how that goes. He said he's you know better shape, looking at the launch angle gains uh, during the offseason, working on that. Vlad could be an interesting one as well. But for me, pitching, Bueller, that's the guy. All right. This one uh, made me chuckle because I don't really know what's here. But uh, at wake up one two three four five six seven eight nine, Toby, what is time? Uh, what is time? <laughs> uh, I just I don't, I don't know. I have no I answer. Don't, I, don't I have no know. answer. I'm, that's that's far beyond anything you could call expertise on my end, but. Um, if I were a little bit more creative, I could probably think of something. Yes, it's just an endless loop of life. Just think of it that way. That's time. So uh, have fun with that one. Um, but then we'll go to our buddy Yance here. At Yancey Eaton, who I love that he comes with just an off-the-wall question. So this is very, very exciting for me. What toppings or condiments do you guys like on your hot dog, assuming money is no object? Um, I'll let you take the floor on this one, Toby. What do you like on your hot dogs? Well, this is going to be breaking news is I actually, I don't, I don't eat meat. So for me, it would have to be a veggie dog. Yeah. I'm a pescatarian. So I theoretically do eat meat, but of the seafood variety. Gotcha. Um, And I've never had a fish dog before. I don't think that would be very good. That'd be interesting. Um, So it would have to be a veggie dog. And this is a little bit of, so I used to be like, when I was younger, I was very much a straight like ketchup and pickle relish person Mm -hmm. on my hot dogs and even on my veggie dogs. I'm not a big mustard fan. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a big mustard fan, but I would definitely add onions to the equation. But my favorite hot dog slash veggie dog that I have ever had in my entire life is at Spike's Hot Dogs. Uh, which is in New England. I don't know if it still exists. I should probably Google it to see if it does. Let's see. Spikes hot dogs. I, I'm seeing it come up. Okay. So there was one that was right near me. So when I lived in Boston, uh, yeah, they still have one at, on all, in, in Alston, Massachusetts. So I went to BU, Boston University, and they had a Spikes hot dogs there. And they had the best veggie dogs, especially this was like you know, I'm not that old, but like, this was like in like 2000 to 2004, I lived there like 2000 to 2006. And it came in the middle of that. So like a lot of places didn't have veggie dogs, but they did have veggie dogs for any dog that you could create. And it's the weirdest combo ever because in isolation, I don't actually like these things all that much, but it was Russian dressing with Swiss cheese and grilled 
onions or sauteed onions. And I don't know what it was, but it was like the most delicious hot dog I had ever had in my entire life. And they had these really, they like the, the spikes buns were like very like kind of hearty buns, but it was just like, um, unbelievably good. I mean, like I would eat that hot, I would eat that all the time if I could. I used to, I used to go there and get like three of them and just like <laughs> chow down on them, but so good. So that is what I would do. Actually, I would rec- replicate. Let's actually, actually see if I can find it on the menu. I'm sure I can do that. That's the great thing. Okay. Let's see. Uh, locations, Alston. Let's see. Do they have the list of the dogs that they have? Um, oh man. Are they, do they not have, okay. Menu right here. I'm going to tell you what dog it is. So for everybody who's listening to this, who lives anywhere in New England, they have a Providence location, a Warwick location, and an Alston, Massachusetts location. Warwick and Providence obviously are in Rhode Island. It was called the, don't tell me they've gotten rid of it either. That would destroy <laughs> my soul. Oh man, did they get rid of it? Oh my God, don't tell me they did that. I'm not. I would say, okay, they have a larger menu. Okay, I'm looking right here. This is edge of your seat, edge of your seat (laughs) stuff on the podcast today. Right here as I chase down my childhood dreams. Here it is. A Big Dave's Deluxe. Russian dressing, sauteed onions, and Swiss. I don't know why, but it was so good. So unbelievably good. That is the best hot dog or veggie dog that I have ever had in my life. It was a veggie dog every single time I had it, but it was absolutely delicious. So that's what I would have. All right. I'm going to give a couple different answers here because I'm going to go between hot dogs, bratwurst, and, uh, you know, a few other things and kind of go through the repertoire here because as a kid, I hated mustard. I've learned to like mustard now, especially spicier mustards with like sausages and stuff. You could have some fun there. So if you're in Wisconsin and you have the brats, go to like State Street Brats in Madison or something along those lines, you can get to either the standard or get a little spicier brat. And I, I'm a very simple man. Either ketchup and, um, and and sauerkraut, which I used to not be a fan of, either that or grilled onions, either or with the ketchup. I'm a big ketchup fan. That's a mm-hmm. big problem. The wife still hates it to this day. She can't stand the smell of it. I love really? ketchup. Yeah, I, it's weird. That's what I said. Very weird. I love ketchup. She's ketchup. She's very lucky you stuck with her. Yeah, yeah, just because there's certain days she's like, are you really going to put that on your, you know, French fries? Yes, yes, I am actually. And so we, we continue on. But um, so that's that's my bratwurst thing. Um, at Giants games, they have the Sheboygan brat. A, it's one of the best bang for your bucks in the ballpark. If you want a dog, it's like eight or nine bucks now. It used to be like $7. The thing is humongous. They cover it in grilled onions and sauerkraut, and then you put your ketchup on it. Big fan of that. But if you just want the simple hot dogs. I'll either go to basic ketchup. If you want to go bacon wrap, like you're in Mexico after the bars, those are phenomenal with some ketchup. Just basic ketchup or great sheer and said it on Twitter when he answered the question. If you really have like nowhere else to be and you can handle a potential upset stomach, a very high quality chili and cheese hot dog is just good. Like the kind where you need a fork and a knife. That is, you know, they get the big bun, like, um, you know, it could be a pretzel bun or it can be a um, sesame seed bun, like a big quality bun and a good hot dog with not just like basic chili, good chili, sprinkle some cheese on that melts into it. Very, very good. I'm not an onion guy. Like they have to be grilled. 
fresh onions I can't do. I know people Sa- fresh sauteed onions. onions. On yeah, sauteed up there. If it's uh, fresh onions where they're all crunchy, not a fan. But uh, a really good chili dog goes a long, long way. Like I, I'm telling you, but you got you roll the dice because they could upset your stomach. Just throwing that out there. Totally. And you want you want to know something that I just realized based on this segment, uh, Bubba, is we really shouldn't be doing a fantasy baseball podcast. I mean, we should be, should be doing like a food podcast or something like that because, quite frankly, that was a terrific segment. I'm all for it. Like we could do, we could do food drafts, different types of foods. Hey, listeners, get more interesting, like Yancey Eaton, and ask us questions about what type of food we like. Yeah, foods. You know, you know, places to visit, all kinds of random things. Just have fun with it. What type of uh, seltzer water do you like? I don't know. Let's go, go get wild with it, and uh, see what happens. So that can be a lot of fun. But we have one more question. We have two questions actually from Cody McDonald at Comac Doom. Do you want the hard hitting question or the fantasy question first, Toby? Let's let's do the uh, let's do the fantasy question first because the okay. sec the second one just a warning here um, is a little bit it's about what's going it's on deep. in the world right now. So yeah. uh, you know, depending on your level of interest in humanity, you may have a different <laughs> differing level of interest in our in our responses to it. But right. um, but uh, yeah, let's do the fantasy one first. Yeah, the fantasy one kind of go, goes back to the relief pitching topics we were talking about earlier. But he asked, who is your favorite handcuff for saves that aren't in a committee? So, like, none of the Rays guys would count there. Um, and in some of these other committees we talked about in, in recent times. Oh, so who, who aren't in a committee? That are not in a committee is the way I read that. Let me double check. Man. Yeah, amongst non-committees. Non-committee. So basically, who are you looking at that could like usurp? I believe is the right word. The oh, closer so in action. Usurping. Oh man, I am totally. Yes. I'm woefully, woefully unprepared. See, uh, I had to use this. the big word this week because you had repertoire last week, so I get to say Rep- usurp this week. Usurp. I love it. This is, this could also be a vocabulary, uh, <laughs> a vocabulary and food uh, podcast that we do here. Um, well, so let's follow the guys that I think are not going to be closers that last for a long time. So I think number one, not a big fan of Brandon Workman just because of the super high walk rate. Um, so I think that concerns me a lot. And so I think for that reason, I would be very interested in potentially Matt Barnes, just because I think Matt Barnes is a little less wild um, and has some really nasty stuff. So if you catch the right side of variance uh, on him, he could be really, really good. Um, I think, do you want to go, do you want to alternate so that I don't steal all yeah. of them? Let's yeah, do that let's do because that. Let's it, I must be the forth. worst person to share a podcast. <laughs> no, Barnes was uh, one of the ones I had. So I'm glad we're going to share these. So we just get to, to take a few. So I, we kind of talked about it on the closers pod, but Brad hands a little wavery. I think James Karinchik with uh, Cleveland is a good one. Good velocity on that fastball has definite closer stuff. Um, he'd be a guy I'd be looking at. I know I've noticed in recent drafts he's been getting picked up towards the end. So Karinchik and Cleveland would be one I take a look at. Who would be your next one? All right. Um, so the next one that I would go with would probably be Michael Lorenzen. Uh, not necessarily because I think that. He that Rizal Iglesias is bad. I think Rizal Iglesias is pretty good. I also have a short amount of uh, amount of time to think about this. Uh, so um, for that reason, I would probably go. I would go with Lorenzen just because the Reds show showed last year that they're willing to put 
Iglesias into the highest leverage situation. And so as a result, Lorenzen, I'm not sure how many, let me, I can, I can find this out pretty quickly. So Lorenzen last year had, I know he had some saves. Make me look good here. Uh, I'm not looking so good here. Well, he had one save in the That's last it? month of oh. the season. Seven uh, no, he, I think he had more during the season. He had like seven overall. But okay. he's a guy, I mean, I just think like he showed some really big improvements in the second half of last year. The velocity was way up. Um, everything was really, really good. Swinging strike rate was through the roof. And so I think for that reason, I would uh, go with Lorenzen as another guy who I would target because I think he's next in line and I think he's good. He's going to be good enough and he may even get like more than one inning at a time where the volume could be decent enough, especially in deeper leagues um, to have on your roster potentially. Who's your second? I'll stay in the NL Central and I'll go Corey Knable. Um, this later start in the year would give him a chance to recover completely from injury. I could see Josh Hader playing more of the fireman again this year. Maybe not be the – he's still going to get plenty of saves. Don't get me wrong. But I can see Corey Knable stepping in there if anything happened to Hader, if they traded Hader. There's been rumors of that. I think Corey Knable could be that guy who's once the closer of the Brewers. Uh, looked pretty decent from what people have said of late. So I think Knable would be one to uh, take a gander at with Milwaukee as a guy that could could run into maybe uh, you know five to ten saves if everything goes properly. Cool. So have a third great. one. Ooh, a third one, man! I'm still, I'm still. Or we, or I can just give a couple quick hits. We don't have to go deep. Ooh, on go through. Give me, give me a couple quick hits, Bubba. All right, uh, Tyler Rogers, the Giants, because everyone's drafting Tony Watson. Tyler Rogers is one to keep an eye on. Submarine yep. machine, like that. If you're in a deep league, again, this is speculating because of the late start in the year. Everyone is drafting Giovanni Gallegos. Jordan Hicks will be back by midseason, folks, by July. So just keep that in mind if you're drafting. He might, uh, assuming all goes well, again, coming back from TJ, you never know. But he'll be back, and he's supposed to be ready to go by July-ish. Keep that in mind when you're looking at your St. Louis closing situation. And then if, like, I'm trying to pick some that don't look like, you know, like Oberg and Wade Davis. That's pretty self-explanatory there. Um, I like Yoshi Hirano, but that's kind of already been established by many. Other than that, you're how, how just about really I'll, I'll go. I'll go with one, Bubba. Um, how about Tyler Duffy for the twins? That's an option. Um, Duffy, just because of the change going to the three, um, you know, I love Tyler. I love, uh, Taylor Rogers. I think he's really, really good. Um, Duffy has very good skills and given like the new bullpen rules, maybe they throw in Rogers against some lefties in a high leverage situation in the eighth and Duffy, you know, uh, comes in in that particular situation. Duffy actually had a higher K-minus walk rate than Taylor Rogers did last year. Again, I love Rogers. They're both very, very good. Um, Duffy's was a top 10 K-minus walk rate. Um, so that's obviously uh, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty darn good. And I like also like Colin Posh or Poshé. Yeah, I don't know one. exactly how you say it. But, you know, obviously Nick Anderson is great. He's terrific. He's only done it one year, though. And also he's a righty. And so maybe Posh comes in in a lefty heavy situation, high leverage situation. So, um, and he also he had a 25.6 K minus walk rate. Ah, yes. Jose Alvarado. That's probably a better one to be honest with you. That's the guy I like, but uh, yeah, lots of options there for sure. Every team you can almost pick one. If you really wanted to get crazy, if you're going super deep, 
But talking super deep, let's get deep, Toby. Ooh, getting deep. Uh, how long do you think the world economy can be essentially shut down before the risk of contracting coronavirus outweighs the risk of starving going broke? And you know what's, I guess, crazy is not the right word. Cody asks us, asked us this question pretty early in the morning. I saw a lot of people debating this topic throughout the day. So it's like a serious issue, according to many right now. So um, I'll let you have the floor on this one. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you can't, I don't think, um, I don't think there becomes a, a point in time. I mean, obviously we cannot have a situation where, you know, we're stuck for years on end, you know, constantly battling COVID-19, but I think it's kind of a false question because I think the challenge is the reason why we're doing what we're doing, we're implementing the strategy that we are is to flatten the curve and to extend the amount of time uh, that it takes for people to uh, to get COVID-19, right? So that we get a vaccine or we find some sort of, um, you know, pharmaceutical intervention that can actually either limit the spread or limit the impact that the disease has. But I don't think at any point we should say that, oh, well, what we're going to do is uh, sacrifice people who are more vulnerable. We are going to know that X percent, X number of people are going to die because we're not talking about like, we're not talking about, you know, uh, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people um, that are, that are going to die. And I don't think you can uh, balance uh, life uh, versus uh, the stock market, right. And people's livelihood. What should be happening is what is happening in terms of there being, uh, a bailout for individuals and small businesses, you know, people who uh, whose livelihoods are either gone or very much threatened to make sure that people can make it through that period of time. I mean, I think that's one of the major functions of government is to be able to support people uh, during incredibly difficult times. And I think one of the things that we don't have is a strong safety net uh, that provides support for people. So we have to have these types of uh, massive, you know, one-time stimulus packages uh, to be able to support people to be able to function. But I think it's a false question because if people start going back to work, what's going to happen is that curve, instead of flattening the curve, you're going to get the curve where you have more people going to the hospitals, overrunning our healthcare system. You're going to have more people sick. When people get sick, they have to leave the office. When they go to the office sick, then they get other people sick. So all you're going to do is not flatten the curve. And you're going to have more people that need to access health care, more people who are dying from preventable reasons because the healthcare system is overrun. Situations like are happening in Italy where people have to, where the doctors have to decide who to give a ventilator to and who not to. So I think for me, it really is a false question. What we need to do is we need to support people who are losing their jobs. Other countries have done this. Like, you know, uh, um, England, I believe, is paying 85% of people's salaries. Denmark is playing, paying 75% of people's salaries. Like government can do this and they should do this in this particular instance. And I think what it's kind of laid bare too is the fact that we actually face this question all the time in our lives for the longest of time, but it's been hidden, right? Like, because either you, you know, and I'm assuming, right, like me as a privileged person, I haven't had to face this, but you know, like in the richest country in the world, like we have people who don't have access to healthcare, who don't have access to good healthcare because of their income. 
right? Who literally are dying because they don't have access to healthcare because they push it off or they're not able to get procedures that they need, or they have to like, like diabetics who can't get their um, insulin because it's so damn expensive here. And so they have to ration it out and they end up dying. Like that actually happens all the time. So we're already making that decision as a society already. I think what's happened with COVID-19 is, is it laid bare the fact that that is a choice that we are consistently making. And I think we're making the wrong choice by not providing the support uh, that we need to, to everybody in our society to be able to uh, have access to good quality healthcare. And I'm hoping that the, that the light or the, the silver lining of everything that we're going through now, and the unfortunate part is that people have to die as a result of it, um, is that we will learn and that we, ha- we will have a, have a society uh, and a government that's more willing to support individuals and people um, uh, when they are struggling and to give them every chance they they have to succeed. Because for a lot of us, like we're all finding in a broader sense that all of us are dependent on something, right? Like a virus like this comes along and all of a sudden everybody who thought that they were safe and that their industry was safe and that their job was incredibly important and made it so that they weren't you know, going to have to ever face these challenges are now facing these challenges, and so if we're all going to be in this together, then we all need to be in it together. We can't sell out anybody else. We can't sell out vulnerable people. And the last thing I'll say is we always assume when we make these types of choices, like, you, would you actually be willing to say, okay, well, if it's going to be my family that's going to die as a result of this choice, that I'm okay with that to steady the economy? A lot of times we're talking about these theoretical people dying that we don't need to see actually physically die. But if it's your family, is that the decision that you would make? I think that's the kind of frame that we have to have as we think through these things. So there's my political diatribe of the podcast. And, you know, if you disagree with me and you want to unfollow or never listen to me again, then I don't blame you. But uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I don't know where you're at, uh, Bubba. No, I agree with pretty much everything you said. And the biggest thing I want to emphasize is no one should unfollow you because this isn't a Democrat or Republican thing. It's an American thing. And that's the thing that I've been trying to portray on twitter because i try to keep politics out of my twitter like i like politics and religion two things you just don't talk about it just never ends well no matter how you feel about it and i'm a pretty like neutral guy like i i vote one side of it but my feelings i agree on things on both sides a lot like i'm pretty much i just want the best the betterment of everybody like that's just my opinion on things and we should be able to do that like you said there's no one thing i argue many times is there's no excuse to not have health care in this country like free health care or at least global health care there's no excuse for that like there really isn't for for one of the biggest and most powerful countries in the world with the amount of money we have, there's zero excuse for that, in my opinion. Um, there's other things that, you know, I, I think people should have to go do certain things and still have a job. And, you know, you can't just, you know, ask for free money all the time. Different scenario than now, obviously. But I'm talking about there's there's a little bit of everything. Times like this require drastic measures. And that's where you they should be getting bailed out by the country, like especially small businesses. When I see large corporations getting bailed out first, it makes me sick. Absolutely sick. Um, these people have billions with a B dollars and they can't take a hit for a couple months while there's people that are literally not knowing where they're going to buy top ramen tomorrow. Like that's where it's gotten. And that's just ridiculous. So, uh, I'm with you there. And the idea of sending them back to work is not the answer because that puts us back to where we were like three weeks ago. And that's just, and that puts us back to Italy, puts us back to New York. Like there's a reasons why the numbers, every time we see New York's is very, very large is because it's like Italy where people live on top of each other, where at least where you and I are, Toby, for the most part, we're, we're in we're in or close to bigger cities, but we're still kind of spread out. It's not like like where I live, it's a small town. We're spread out. People are going to get stuff here and there. But like Monterey County right now, I think has like five total cases. 
and it's like one a day here and there. Like you've gone days without anything because no one's really on top of each other. So it's a little easier to social distance or whatever. And as long as you follow the rules, we'll keep the curve flat. But you've got these big cities where everyone's on top of each other. And if you don't follow the rules, you're literally just constantly in contact and it's never going to get, it's going to get much worse before it gets better. So throwing people back into the mix is not the answer. Um, there's got to be a way that the government can help stimulate the economy by doing what they do. I, I agree with certain things like help small businesses. If you uh, can order out, do that. Like if you really are hardcore, I'm not leaving the house. I respect that too. Like that, that's part of the deal. But if it's like one person can go out, pick up food, bring it home. I'm all aboard those type of things. Um, and then one last thing, different from the question mentioned, but I've tried to make a point and by zero, I'm not trying to say I'm holier than thou, but I'm just trying to make a point when I go to the grocery store or something and you're in line or you see someone working there, I try to ask them how their day's doing. I try to ask them questions about themselves because they look beaten down whenever you see them and they're sitting there just busting their ass for people like us for, they don't know us, but they're doing it anyways. And, um, and like even today I had to go grab some stuff at the store. They're not allowed to touch our, our reusable bags. They're not allowed to do anything. Like they're in their own little bubble getting fed things. That I can only imagine what goes on in their head of how it makes them feel working every day. Um, there's, I, I don't know what your stores are. I'm assuming they are. There's pieces of tape throughout the store to make sure you're six feet apart everywhere. It's, um, pretty wild times, un unheard of times for the likes of you and I in our lifetime. So I know I was a little off the beaten path, but I think if we stay the course, things will go well. It's just frustrating when you see not everyone's on the same page. I guess that'd be my other big bugaboo besides the government not helping these people out right now is the fact that every state, every city seems to be on their own schedule. And until we all get on the same schedule, it's never going to matter the way I see it. So that's frustrating as well. Definitely. There. That's our. That's uh. We could also be a political podcast. Baba. No, you no, and I not doing we'll that. We'll do. We'll <laughs> do vocabulary, food, and politics. Sounds like something that people would tune into every week. Yes. Yes. They would tune in for some one reason or another, but probably uh, they might might not stay for long. But uh, that'll wrap us up this week. Let's go out on that note. Uh, Toby's on Twitter at batflipcrazy. I'm at bdentric, and I hope you guys stay safe out there. Uh, keep that social distancing intact. And we will be back with you guys next Monday with some fun drafts. Maybe talk some more food. Whatever questions you throw our way, we'll have you. But Bubba and the Bat Flip, episode 30 in the books. Catch you guys later.